0: Thanks Rona, thank you very much So this uh, new uh, sermon series uh, A Rough Guide uh, to the Apostles' Creed I think uh, it will just appear up there In just any second Yeah, there you go New sermon series A Rough Guide to the Apostles' Creed And I'm going to invite you to do something You don't have to do I'm going to invite you to put your phone away I'm going to invite you to stop peering out what's going on in the world. I'm going to invite you, having made the hard journey to be here physically, to make the even tougher journey perhaps to be here mentally, if you see what I mean. Uh, Otherwise, well, otherwise you've come all this way in the rain and you lose out. So let's make ourselves fully present. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the things the church has believed through 2,000 years. But we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does that mean for us today, living in South London, living in uh, 2018? What difference does it make to us today? Probably a question that I am asked, or a conversation rather, that I have... Um, half a dozen times a week, every week, truly, honestly, is with someone who will say to me, Steve, I'm searching for direction and meaning, and I'm wondering what to do with the next step of my life, and I'm struggling with that. In actual fact, I believe that if we will give God the space to speak to us, we'd be able to obtain all the direction we need from just looking at these words and asking what they mean for us today God is often blamed for our lack of attention I uh, was chatting to someone just this week about that someone who said to me but what's God saying to me well actually it's a struggle to discover what God's saying to you but the first step in it is to pause long enough to listen so we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed. Here is the Apostles' Creed. I'm not asking you to read it from there. You've got it on a piece of paper in front of you, actually, which we're going to do something with a little bit uh, later. But the interesting thing is that the Apostles' Creed and the creeds have been, I believe, really misunderstood by the church. It's like, if I believe this, I'm a bona fide Christian. I am sound, I'm not a heretic. But the truth is the church has a whole number of creeds and we believe that God is love and follow Christ. Jesus said, follow me and worship God. We believe that that's at the heart of everything so we're followers of Christ, not a creed. So if that's true, why are we going to spend the next uh, few weeks, couple of months looking at the creed? simply because of what I want to explain to you now. There are several creeds, and we're going to look briefly at, uh, at them. The one that's very famous and was said in most Anglican churches and most Catholic churches this morning is what's called the Nicene Creed, um, but it's not just the Nicene Creed, it's the Constantinople version of the Nicene Creed, which was written in the year 381. The Nicaea Creed, which it gets called, wasn't written in 381, and it's not the one that gets said. The Nicaea Creed was actually written in 325. And it was written and called the Nicaea Creed because what was called an ecumenical council long-term meaning Christian leaders from around the known world gathered in Nicaea because Constantine, the dictator emperor, told them to. And the Nicene creed was written in Nicaea and Constantine actually chaired the meetings. So when the church stands up and says, this is our creed, remember what they're saying is, we're saying is, this is our creed written down a map by a man called Constantine that in other sermons you've heard may not have actually been a Christian. That's why in 381 there was a new council and it met in Constantinople because by then they, um, that, that had become a very important Roman city and again it was held by the Roman powers uh, to discuss the future. And then there was another ecumenical council There were only three that ever happened. And the third one happened in a place called Ephesus that you know of because it's a town, uh, it's a city that's mentioned in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Christians there in Ephesus and Timothy is the leader of the church in Ephesus. So the letters to Timothy are written to the church in Ephesus. But Ephesus held the third ever ecumenical council. But by then... They decided not to invite some people that they didn't like. I um, was for about seven or eight years, or perhaps it was nine years, um, a special advisor to the United Nations until quite recently. Uh, A special advisor to the UN. So I've sat in endless uh, UN discussions, and I know the trickery that happens. I've witnessed the trickery that happens. When you want to make an agreement and reach a point on a particular subject, you, if you're chairing the meeting, call the meeting at a time or a place when the people you don't want to be in the meeting, the countries that you don't want to be there, can't make it. Fantastic way forward. It means you get your own way. And that's what happened in Ephesus. And the result of that, the, uh, the council took place in 435, and the result of that, it took 600 years for it to happen because stuff went even slower then than it does now. In, uh, just after, at the end of the first millennium, uh, the Eastern Church, now called the Orthodox Church, split from the Western Church, because they never agreed. There was loads more politics to it. But they weren't invited, they didn't sign up, they didn't like what was said, and 600 years later they took their revenge and they left. And that's how you get Roman Catholicism, the Western Church, and the Orthodox Church, which is the Eastern Church. So, because I realize I'm probably boring half of you already, let me answer this question. Where did creeds come from? The Apostles' Creed is a pretty old one. It predates all of the creeds I've just talked about, but it's not really the oldest creed. The oldest creed is actually called the Old Roman Creed, produced by the Roman Empire. We're not really quite sure when, and it was produced in various forms. It's sometimes called the Old Roman Symbol. And uh, we know why it was produced, because at the end of Matthew's Gospel, it tells us uh, that, that Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world... And baptize everyone you meet and who will become a disciple in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus had said that, as people got baptized, the church came up with some words about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they called it the Old Roman Creed because it was part of the Roman Empire. But a little bit later came along some other people and they said... This has got stuff missing. Of course it had stuff missing. That's the point about creeds. They always have stuff missing. It's got stuff missing. And so what we want to do is write a longer one. So this, we think, is the shortest version of the old Roman creed from the Roman Empire. I keep saying that. That's important, right? And uh, along comes a meme and say, well, it's got, it's got bits that aren't there that we'd like to be there and they came up with the apostles creed when i say they it was a long process but the apostles creed was born and that's the one you've got in your hands which we're going to add to which you probably think is something you know if you add to the creed god gets you and you go to hell forever but it's not okay that's the point actually there's nothing that you go to hell forever for but um Uh, but that's to come later in the creed (laughs) we'll deal with that later because there's a lot of misunderstandings that have crept in along the years that weren't in uh, these original creeds as you will see because you can read that and incredibly there is no mention of hell so where did that come from? well What happened was um, the Apostles' Creed is a development of that. And there in red are some lines that were written in. Now, I'm not wanting to tell you that creeds are bad. Creeds are really good. But creeds are just like us getting together and doing our best work. When we get together and do our best work, perhaps around gang violence on May the 24th, we will say, hopefully, some very, very good things that are worth writing down and doing things about. But we're likely to also leave some things out because we just won't think of them, but other people in other places will think of them, which is why dialogue in everything becomes so important. So the old Roman creed was great because it was an attempt to build on what Jesus said, And it was written, we think, as a kind of baptismal creed. When you got baptized, you stood up and you said, this is what I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born uh, from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, etc., etc. That was your way of saying it. The Apostles' Creed came later and it said, well, there are bits that we think should should have been in that weren't in. And these are the thoughts that are added, they're in red, that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that Jesus uh, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and that after he was crucified, died and was buried, he descended into hell. But there are two versions, one of the Apostles' Creed that says he descended into hell, and the other that he descended to the dead, which doesn't mention hell. And then uh, they inserted uh, down there the holy, uh, if you look at the old Roman creed it just said the holy church. They've inserted the holy catholic church. Why did they insert the catholic bit to the church and the communion of saints? Some of this is really good development and some of it is politics beginning to creep in. Because politics always begins to creep in. When we think of, and I just presented to you, the church before the great cataclysmic split at the end of the first millennium, or the beginning of the second, when the Orthodox church went one way and the Roman Catholic church went the other way, the Western and the Eastern church, we think before that, all there was was Roman Catholicism. That's not true. In the first few hundred years after Jesus, there were various uh, Christian groups. Christianity wasn't a block. There were various factions, and they jostled. They had slightly different views and opinions. They emphasized different things that Jesus said or did. And imperial Catholicism was one of them. Only after Constantine, the emperor, became a Christian... Until then, all Christians were despised and all Christians were persecuted. And there was a famous Roman emperor, Diocletian. Do you remember him from learning about him at school? He hated Christians and he persecuted them everywhere at the beginning of the 300s. After Constantine became the emperor, he became a Christian. He, be- he declared war on his enemies in the name of Christ or the cross, and he won. And so he said, well, I've won. I've slaughtered all my enemies in the name of this God, so I'm going to follow this God. And he became a Christian. The Christians had been in various factions, various shades of opinions. One, um, uh, uh, well, they were all kind of hidden, and they were all kind of on the run, they had differences. But when the emperor became a Christian, he sponsored imperial Roman Christianity. I mean, it was the Roman emperor, he wasn't going to sponsor any other kind. So Roman Catholicism, imperial Catholicism, was the emperor's brand. The problem was that whilst Diocletian was persecuting all the Christians across, uh, North Africa well across the whole Roman Empire but particularly in North Africa there was this huge persecution uh, going on in, in the Roman province of Africa which is, is Algeria and one or two other countries around it now um, there, there, was a, there, was a, uh, there was a bishop called uh, uh, Donus, and the bishop he put up a big struggle against the imperial powers The imperial powers decided that Christians should be persecuted and they insisted on the handing in of any biblical texts. And that's how you escape persecution, if you gave up all your documentation. But in North Africa, the Christians wouldn't do that. They were determined that they weren't going to do that. And so they became known as the Donatists. If you read Wikipedia... You will discover that the Donatists are heretics. Wrong. I read it just yesterday, actually, not orthodox. But all it was was that they took a tough stance. And after the persecutions had finished, an extraordinary thing happened. The extraordinary thing was when Constantine became emperor and was a Christian, suddenly everyone wanted to be a Christian. It was a way of climbing the ladder the church that had long been persecuted um, hoped for an opportunity when they might be able to spread their word across the world and now it came and they were celebratory but all of a sudden all sorts of people quite dodgy started joining the church because it was now like the thing to be part of and it watered everything down but the Donatists The Christians in North Africa, they said, no, if you were one of those who were persecuting the church, you can't now claim to be a bishop. If you were one of those who forced Christians to burn their Bibles, well, you can't now be appointed the local leader of the local church. And they took it further. They said, and if you've been appointed as a local leader of a local church by someone who once didn't stand up for their faith, you can't be in But the imperial um, wing of Christianity didn't like that because they were the Roman state. And so they decreed that the Donatists were heretics. And that's why you think Donatism is a heresy if you've ever thought about it before. I went to theological college and I was told they were heretics. No, they weren't. They were just Christians who stuck up for what they believed and the might of the imperial army ground them into the dirt. What I'm really saying is, it's quite often a minority view on anything. And it's worth listening to the minority as well as the majority. And we often find, do we not, this week we remembered that it was 50 years ago that Martin Luther King was shot dead um, on the balcony of a a motel in Memphis. Do we often not find in history that it's the very minority that we want to stamp out that turn out to have the truth? So, here's the Nicene Creed. Look, there you go. There's the old Roman Creed. Got a bit longer. Apostles' Creed. There's the Nicene Creed. Mark 1. The Nicene Creed, Mark 2, is even longer. I didn't even try to get that on a slide. And the Nicene Creed, Mark 3, is even longer. Because they kept on adding in bits of theology, but also some of that theology was driven by the battles that they wanted to sort out and the wars they wanted to win and the groups of Christians they wanted to push away and the groups of Christians they wanted in. And the Creed. This is the Nicene Creed, which I told you was chaired by Constantine. This is imperial theology. It's not theology from North Africa. It's not theology from the people that you didn't want to hear and the people that you wanted to shut out. Does that make sense? But creeds, well, even this long one, There are huge things that are not just in there because they're political. There are things that are left out. Here's something that is left out. God is love. Which is why uh, Rona read to us so beautifully, by the way, from 1 John. 1 John, verse 16, says simply this, God is love. It had taken a long time for the church to work out that God is love. This statement, this shortest verse in the Bible actually, God is love, occurs near the end of the Old Testament. It's not in, it's not in Leviticus, it's not in Numbers, it's not in, it's, not, it's not in Joshua, it's not in Kings or Judges, it's not in the prophets of the Old Testament it comes right at the end as this old man sits down and reflects on all he's come to understand of Jesus and what Jesus has revealed about God. And he sits there, and I always have this picture of him writing slowly. I've got it at last. God is love. This is the most profound, the deepest theological statement in all of the universe. God is love. And its ramifications and its implications are absolutely massive. They're huge. But if you look at your Apostles' Creed, or if we had time to read through the Nicene Creed, you'd see that there is no statement in any major creed of the church. By the way, the church gave up writing creeds, um, uh, after the church fell apart as a result of their creeds, they kind of decided, hey, this is probably not such a good thing. And they, uh, they, they gave up writing creeds, which is why in the Anglican churches, as said earlier, today they will recite the 381 Constantinople Creed, because it's the last one that everyone agreed to before they split. But it was written one and three-quarter millennia ago. So no one thought, To say in any of these creeds that God is love, you'll see it's entirely missing. Another thing that's missing is any mention of the mission of the church. Have a look at the piece of paper you got, it's entirely missing. So I'm here to say to you this, that the creeds aren't extra bits of the Bible. If I can sign up to this and I can swear on it, it's like standing in front of the American flag and doing my thing every morning. If I can sign up to this, I'm in and I'm not a heretic. What I'm saying is these were wonderful guides that were written. They're papers that are written to help us. But sometimes there was stuff that people missed, and sometimes there was stuff that they included because they wanted to make a point against someone else that they wanted to exclude. So the statement that God is love, or any ramification of that, is entirely missing from all creeds. And the statement that God is a God of mission is entirely missing. Leanne said I was going to talk on the uh, first Uh, little section. Um, We believe in God, the Father. I'm not, except to say this. John says, God is love. That's why he's God the Father, not the judge. God the parent, God the lover, God's relationship with us is as a parent to children. That's why we can trust him. Some of us, even our relationships with our parents have been scarred. But God is the perfect uh, parent. God is love. And if God is love, that gives the church a huge mission. And that's the... Another thing that the creeds don't talk about, they don't talk about the task of the church in any way at all. An extraordinary thing happened to the church, and then um, I'm going to ask you to do something. An extraordinary thing happened to the church because... It was a big struggle, you know, Diocletian was after them, Christians were being persecuted all over the place, then suddenly Constantine is a Christian emperor. And being a bishop turns from being something you could lose your life over tomorrow into something that's going to get you a big house and a gold ring. All of a sudden, being a bishop, a leader of the church, is going to put you at the center of the power. And people flock into churches because it's the place to be, it's the club to join, it's the institution to sing, to be part of. And that disappointed many of those who really wanted to follow Jesus. Because they thought that if we could ever get out of this persecution, then God's kingdom will really come. But now they got out of the persecution and it seemed to get worse, not better. It really did seem to get worse, not better. And as a result, two things happened. I'm going to say them quickly, but they're big and you can write a PhD thesis on either. The first is the Christians fled to the deserts. Have you heard of the Desert Fathers? Yeah? Why did the Christians go to the deserts? Because they couldn't stand it any longer in the cities. It had become so corrupt that they went to the deserts. And they went to the deserts to sit in silence and solitude and learn. And as a result of the Christians abandoning the cities to go to the deserts, a whole monastic movement uh, got itself set up, as you know. Benedict came in 5th in, in, uh, century, etc., etc., but they followed because it was one of the first fathers was Antony who went to the desert the desert fathers and mothers we talk about them they went and they lived in caves they gave up food they gave up luxury they gave up sex they gave up everything to go to the desert to find peace somehow in the madness of what had become this empire and of course, the empire slowly disintegrated and was at civil war with itself. So they went to the deserts. That's the first thing. The church, finding that things couldn't work out for them, went to the desert. And the monastic movement started, which is about leaving the madness and seeking peace. The other thing that happened, and it happened through the theology of a guy called. Uh, Uh, we call him Saint Augustine now, Augustine of Hippo, who was born in North Africa actually and installed um, as a North African bishop and he was the one who persecuted the Uh, Donatists. Augustine did a lot of good things, but he did uh, try to wipe out the Donatist church. Um, So Augustine did these things, but what Augustine did is he internalized theology. Jesus' command was to go into all the world's, To help people become my disciples. Jesus' command was to go and love. To take the blow and not return it. To wash the feet. Jesus' command was to go to the poorest of the poor. And when you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. If you're looking for me, you won't find me in California. Well, you will if you live there. But there's no point in going to California to find God. Go to the poor and serve them. Because in the face of the poor, not necessarily the economically poor... The economically poor, the socially poor, the emotionally poor, the emotionally betrayed and forgotten. There are poor everywhere. There are poor people living in Holland Park, believe it or not, behind their huge gates. There's a poverty, an an emotional poverty. Jesus says, go to those who are poor, who are betrayed, who are forgotten, who are lonely. Go to them. Jesus' message of the kingdom of God was very external. Do 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 you see that? It was very external. Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Or when Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't start with, Lord, we worship you and we praise you and we, we bow and ask for forgiveness. He talks about forgiveness, but it's after he said, Your kingdom come. Jesus' message is externalized. But as things go wrong, some people run to the desert. But Augustine particularly internalizes the message. So in actual fact, the battle is not out there anymore. It's in me. It's in me to become a committed follower of Christ, to sit and to contemplate, to be pure, to be holy, to not doubt, to not be tempted, to drive away all the accursed thoughts in my head before constantine became a christian you probably know this he wrote something called the uh, he wrote something called the confessions you, you know the confessions of st augustine which is a bit like the confessions of the window cleaner or something like that he really are you know it's about his early life it's not about his whole life it's an autobiography and it's about this 15 year affair he had he had, a, he had an affair with a concubine. He wasn't married to her. He, 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 he says, I just fell into lust. He said, I lived in a cauldron of lust. That's one of the quotes from his books. He, he, and he had this 15-year affair with her, and they had a child, etc., etc., and then oh, everything fell apart, and uh, he chose a different way, and he became this great Christian leader and this great theologian. But he was escaping from this internal problem that he'd had, So here's what's happened. We've internalized all this. So you can say a creed, you go back to any of these, you can say a creed and what is it? It's all about stuff you believe. There is absolutely no commitment to any action over anything in any of these creeds. It's just about what goes on internally. Because as the Roman Empire moved in, they either ran away to the desert or they internalized it and our spiritual quest became to get ourselves right internally so i want to ask you a question what do you think's missing from the creed if you pick up that piece of paper you got yeah it's got a big gap on the end right before it gets to amen I inserted the gap. Because theology is like biology or any other science. It's moving, it's growing. It's never static. So what would we add? What would you add? I've told you some of the clues about the things that I'd add. I tweeted this tweet this week. Gangs are born out of a lethal absence of hope. The only way to counteract the lure of gang life and violence and the violence it breeds is to offer real hope. Only communities that offer genuine hope can trump the offer of the the knife and the gang. I believe that. That's why we've begun Oasis Hub Waterloo. That's why we've begun the secondary school here. That's why we work with so many kids who will know young people who are in gangs. That's why we work so hard for them. I believe that education can be a way out of poverty, but I believe something deeper than that. Coming to understand purpose in life and being part of a community and being held can get you out of many of the uh, traps that are there. And I think if you know very much about our secondary school here, you'll know that its track record is it does that. It does that for hundreds of young people, from backgrounds that would have led them in other directions. I'm not pretending for a moment it's easy. I'm not, pretend, I'm not trying to say for a moment that there aren't bad things that could happen, but the truth is that in the five years of running this school, we've worked with each of these young people, and we brought to them hope, meet some of them, talk to some of them. You'll discover that. Here is another picture from this week. This is Martin Luther King when he was arrested. You know, one of his best books is um, The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. This is actually the official shot of him as he, was, um, as he was jailed. But this man believed something that changed the world. I listened to Radio 4 this morning and there was a big service in Westminster Abbey and uh, it was thanking God for the m- life of Martin Luther King, which is a wonderful thing. But actually... In the 1950s, when he really needed someone to speak up for him, there was just a deafening silence from much of the church. So what's the mission of God? I'm going I'm to ask Mark to come and play again. He does it so brilliantly. And whilst he does that, I'd like to give you three or four minutes just to think about So what would you add to your creed in terms of what it means to follow Jesus? What do you want to say? And what will you do about it? That's the point. Over to you. Let me uh, pray for you. Lord, we're aware that there have been many Christians through history who've looked at the world, the society in which they were based, and called it bad and abandoned it. We believe that you've called us to serve in society, not apart from it. And we seek a spirituality which is about bringing change in Jesus' name, about building God's kingdom, about confronting the darkness with light. Help each one of us in this hall this morning to know what our place is and what our part is and how we can use our gifts, our time, our talents to bring in your kingdom. And to each one of you here, I'd say, I know you might feel that you can do nothing and that your time's so busy and, and there's, you have so little talent or influence or insight. The truth is, I believe that God's put you in your place of work for a purpose. I believe that you live where you live for a purpose, your community, your family, your place of work, your skills, all of this. All of these are ways of serving God. And then for some of us, perhaps there needs to be a change of direction and a change of purpose and a change of lifestyle and a change of location or geography. All of these are ways of serving God. We have a dream, Lord. We have a dream that one day every person will know that they are created in your image, regardless of their skin color or their gender or their sexuality. We have a dream that one day there will be a brotherhood, a sisterhood of humanity that embraces all. And we give our lives to that. Amen.